All right, you ready? I'm ready. All right, tell the story of your bet with Shane. All right, so my friend Shane and I, after college, we were living in San Francisco, and there was this one park that we walked by every single day, and somehow it came up in conversation where that park was located, and Shane said it was located on 22nd Street, and I said it was located on 20th Street. And it's a park that we walk by every day. I am certain that I'm right. I also know Shane is sort of spacey. He doesn't actually know that many facts. So I'm like, all right, let's bet. And then then you took out a map. And I was wrong. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. I was certain. Couldn't believe it. There is something satisfying about a bet. So you say. <laughs> Bets are these moments where there's something at stake, where you got two sides that have said, here's what I believe, and here is a way to test who is right. It's going to be one winner and one loser. And best case scenario, a bet forces you to think carefully about what you believe and what you don't. And there are these famous good-natured bets in the world of science. For example, Stephen Hawking bet another scientist that Cygnus X1... What's Cygnus X1? (laughs) It's a thing up in the sky. (laughs) That Cygnus X1 was not a black hole... Hawking lost. It was a black hole. Richard Feynman, physicist, once bet that no one could make a motor smaller than basically a grain of sand, smaller than 164th of an inch. He also lost. But in economics, bets don't seem to happen very often. In fact, if you ask around, people really just mention one story, one bet. Although it was a big one. It was a bet over the future of humanity. And unlike those bets in science, it was not a friendly bet at all. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today, we talk with historian Paul Sabin at Yale, who just wrote a book about this famous wager. The book is called The Bet, and the story it tells may explain why bets like this don't happen more often. This is not a bet from, like, the 1800s or something. It happened, Alex, when you and I were in middle school. It was a bet between a biologist and an economist. The biologist's name was Paul Ehrlich. He was a professor at Stanford and an expert on butterflies. He'd written a book called How to Know the Butterflies, which was not a big hit. But then in 1968, he wrote another book. It took him just a few weeks to put together. And this book had a much snappier title. It was called The Population Bomb. And it got him on TV. And not just any TV show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Johnny. This, of course, is The Tonight Show. Professor Paul Ehrlich, you see him walk on stage. He's a young guy. He's got short, dark hair. He's wearing a suit that today looks awesomely vintage with a very, very wide, super ornate tie. And the, the fact that he's on The Tonight Show at all is kind of amazing because when he sits down with Johnny Carson for the interview, Ehrlich's message is a bit of a downer. There's 3.6 billion people in the world today, and we're adding about 70 million a year, and that's too many. The very delicate life support systems of the planet, the things that supply us with all of our food, ultimately with all of our oxygen, with all of our waste disposal, are now severely threatened. His basic argument was that there were too many people on, on Earth, and that was going to lead to disaster. This is Paul Sabin, the historian at Yale who wrote the book about the bet we're describing. Ehrlich, he says, was not on The Tonight Show just once. In fact, Johnny Carson had Ehrlich back on The Tonight Show again and again and again, over 20 times. Carson just loved the guy. His book called The Population Bomb has sold over 2 million copies. And his appearances on this show have probably drawn more audience response than any, anyone else we have had on. Would you welcome Dr. Paul Ehrlich. 
The thing about Ehrlich was that even though he was talking about doom, he could also be really funny. He went on tour like a rock star giving all these talks. Paul Sabin dug up this speech recorded in 1970. And let me just say the quality is not very good. The first line you're going to hear is, I've put a lot of thought into what date mankind started to go down the tubes. I put a lot of thought into at what date uh, mankind started to go down the tubes. And I've asked colleagues about this, and we've come up uh, with the date, January 3rd, 8,000 B.C. Uh, that was the day when a few enterprising souls living uh, close to the Iran-Iraq border gave up a hunting and food-gathering existence and began to practice agriculture. <laughs> well, I think that is uh, that is the signature uh, style of Paul Ehrlich, that he both is uh, has a biting wit while at the same time t- telling these uh, horrible stories about what was going to happen to humanity and to the planet. Ehrlich's view of the world, to a lot of people, just seemed intuitively right. I mean, you could look at a graph of the world's population going up year after year, and it showed no signs of stopping. We were living on a finite planet with limited resources. Ehrlich was a biologist, remember, and he'd seen this thing happen with animals. Animals would have population booms during which they depleted their resources, their food supplies, and the result was often a population crash. Humans, he argued, were not immune to these laws. Human race was in real trouble. Sabin says he had a lot of support on this. There were a number of biologists, and they were sort of extrapolating from their studies, in his case of butterflies, but also of other types of creatures, uh, the idea of cycles of population uh, growth and then population collapse. And that would be a devastating, uh, extraordinary, uh, apocalyptic crash unless uh, we took action now to try to avert that. All right. So that's Ehrlich. He is going to be on one side of this bet. The guy on the other side at this point is basically at home, watching Ehrlich on TV and getting really, really worked up. He's an economist. His name is Julian Simon. And Simon had also been worried about population. But the more he studied it, the less worried he got. Simon feels that the growth in population is not going to be a problem, that we are not going to run out of stuff. Though, when he gets a chance to explain himself publicly, he does it in the way that an economist would. Here is Simon on the TV show Firing Line with William F. Buckley. And let me just say by way of introduction that He lacks Ehrlich's charisma. Okay, here he is explaining why he thinks we will not run out of resources. Whether it be copper or wheat or oil, um, we tend to think of the supply as being finite. We think about running out. But if we think instead about our capacities to increase that supply by finding substitutes or by finding better ways to get more of it or by replacing it, then we begin no longer to think about the supply of oil or copper as being finite. So if you don't have copper for telephone lines, but you do have satellites to transmit messages, you're as well off as though you had an infant supply of copper. Exactly. I recognize that move that William F. Buckley is making. Actually explaining what the person just said. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Simon here is basically saying, Ehrlich... You and your population doomsayers, you don't understand how the economy works. We are not like butterflies. We're not like any other species. We're special. And what makes us special is this economic system we've set up that will keep us from harm. If we people want more copper, there will be an incentive to find more copper. If demand for oil grows, the price will go up, which will create an incentive for people to find alternative fuels. But as we said, he lacks Ehrlich's charisma. In fact, later in that firing line interview, he tries for a joke. There's a little joke about this. Um, uh, a kid in class was um, dozing, and all of a sudden he woke up with a sudden start. And he said to the fellow next to him, he said, what happened? What did he say? What did he say? The fellow next to him said, well, he said that the sun is going to burn out in seven million years. He said, oh, he said, thank goodness. I thought he said, um, I'm sorry, he said the sun is going to burn out in seven billion years. 
And he said, thank goodness, I thought he said seven million. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. this, this, tends, this highlights the absurdity of our worrying about things in such a very uh, long horizon. Mm -hmm. Buckley sounds so bored, and there's someone like I, coughing in the middle of I it. I know, I know. Simon never made it on The Tonight Show. So these are the two sides. You got Paul Ehrlich, the megastar population biologist, and Julian Simon, this economist at the University of Illinois. And let me just say, in fairness, that both of them enjoyed making very big claims. And they could be pretty dramatic. Ehrlich started a movement called Zero Population Growth. He got a vasectomy so he couldn't have any kids to set an example. And to try to keep population in check, he proposed taxes on diapers. And instead of a tax break for people who had kids, he suggested an extra tax for people who had children. <laughs> Julian Simon, meanwhile, enjoyed poking the population warriors in the eye. At a certain point, he took to wearing devil horns on his head while giving talks. He would say things along the lines of, we're not going to run out of energy. We have the sun, for crying out loud. And he once threw a drink in a colleague's face after a debate. Simon felt ignored. He never got the attention that Ehrlich did. And it seems that is why he proposed the bet. Simon said he learned this tactic of proposing a bet when he was a kid. He wrote in his autobiography about his father, who would say outrageously wrong things in this sort of authoritative fashion, and he would refuse to hear any questions. And Simon got so frustrated, he wrote, quote, there was really nothing I could say except, do you want to bet? And that's what he said to Ehrlich. Simon wrote an, uh, an article in the, the journal Science uh, that denounced Ehrlich and all people like him. And this was the first time, I guess, that Ehrlich really sort of noticed recognized him. <laughs> that, noticed him, I think. And there was a furious reply, and then they it spilled over into another academic journal where they started arguing with each other. And uh, and Simon proposed a, an actual bet, saying, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Let's see. Uh, let, let's test these ideas. So on one side, Paul Ehrlich and two of his scientist colleagues. On the other side, economist Julian Simon. They decided to put money on this, and here it is. Here is the bet. Here's how they decided to wager over the future of humanity. They decided to bet on the price of five metals, copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten. And it sounds sort of wonky, but there's actually a, a nice logic to it because, you know, the basic idea is that these metals were essential for all kinds of stuff that we do every day. They, were, they go into electronics, into cars, into buildings. So if Paul Ehrlich was right, more people on the planet would mean we would start running out of this stuff, in which case the price of these things should go up. But if Simon was right, that the markets and human ingenuity would sort things out, then the prices would not go up. They would stay the same or even go down. The time frame for the bet was also kind of amazing. It was a bet that would not come due for a decade. The bet was over what the price of these metals would be 10 years later. So they made the bet in 1980. They wouldn't know who won until 1990. Here's how the payout would work. An easy way to imagine it is to think that in 1980, you take a box and you put $200 worth of each metal in the box. So $200 worth of copper, chromium, etc. You got five metals, so the total value in the box is a thousand bucks. Then you wait ten years. In 1990, you open the box and you add up how much the metals are worth. Then, the loser has to pay the winner the difference in price. I think if it had been uh, maybe if it had been Planet Money, they would have actually bought the metals and uh, and held on to them and seen what what would happen. But I think in their case, they they uh, simply went by the prices. But as stunt journalism goes, we approve. This was a good, this was pretty good. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, it's good symbol, symbolism. Ehrlich said he and his colleagues agreed to the bet to shut Simon up for 10 years. But they also thought, of course, they're going to win. 
And here it helps just to remind people, the 1970s, there was all these things happening that made it very easy to think that a collapse was coming. There were famines in Africa. Wars were breaking out. As a result of conflict in the Middle East, OPEC had cut off oil to the United States, which meant huge lines at gas stations stretching around the block. I actually remember this, like the gas shortage of the 70s. Things got so bad that the president at the time, Richard Nixon, decided he had to do something. Good evening. Three weeks ago, I spoke to you about the national energy crisis and our policy. Nixon went on television and he asked people to drive more slowly on the highways to conserve fuel. Instead of those leisurely Sunday drives, he said maybe people could stay at home. I am asking tonight that all gasoline-filling stations close down their pumps between 9 p.m. Saturday night and midnight Sunday every weekend. And this is perhaps the most amazing thing to me looking back. Nixon asked people to cut back on outdoor ornamental lights. We are already planning right here at the White House to, to curtail such lighting that we would normally have at Christmas time. He literally killed Christmas, or at least no Christmas lights on the White House lawn. And all of this to say, I remember the 70s. It was very easy to get the idea that the world was just careening towards catastrophe. In fact, there was a Newsweek cover story around this time, the title of which was, running out of everything. So that was the context for the bet. That's the kind of narrative in America at the time. The bet started in 1980. And remember, it's about the price of metals over a decade. So the bet just sits there. Ten years creep by, during which the world population does continue to climb. We add 800 million people to the planet. And then it's 1990. Who won the bet? So Simon uh, decisively won the bet. The prices went down by, uh, on average, around 50%. In all the metals? Across, you know, if you, if you bundle them together. and uh, They all go down? Across, they all went down. <laughs> Poor Ehrlich. Poor Ehrlich, right. Yeah, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a pretty substantial uh, loss uh, uh, in, in terms of the outcome of that bet. One of the reasons prices dropped so much was just what Simon said. People invented substitutes. Instead of aluminum, people used plastic for packaging. And were Ehrlich worried that new wars and conflict would just continue to escalate and make things scarcer? The opposite sort of happened. You know, for example, a war in Zaire and Zambia, where there was a lot of copper, actually ended. So there was more copper in the world, and the price dropped. Economists have gone back and looked at whether Simon just got lucky. You know, metal prices do go up and down a lot. And if you pick other 10-year spans, Ehrlich would have won. But Paul Sabin says broadly, you got to give this one to Simon. The catastrophe Ehrlich was predicting just did not happen. So far, we have not been just like butterflies. We're more complicated. In the sense that what Simon represented was the idea that, uh, you know, that, that markets and technology and, uh, and prices would uh, lead to uh, adjustment of supply and demand uh, in, in the economic system, I think that's clearly uh, the victory has to go, uh, at least so far, you know, has to go to Simon. What is the good that came out of this bet? What, what did we learn from it? Well, I think that uh, human societies are adaptable, uh, that the, the markets are powerful forces. Uh, but we also uh, – I, I, see, I, I'm, I'd be much more cautious about saying what good thing we learned out of, out of this bet. That, there, was my, or, that was my next question. What was the harm done by this? Well, there's a lot of fighting. There is uh, not a lot of listening. And the other problem here is that a bet about metal prices is really a poor proxy for thinking about the, the state of the planet. Paul Sabin says he thinks the bet actually poisoned the waters, helped set the stage for a world where environmental debates are framed by extremes. One side warning of certain catastrophe, the other side saying, like, all you chicken littles, be quiet, everything's going to be fine. 
In October of 1990, Julian Simon was going through the mail at his house, and he found a small envelope from California. Inside was a sheet of paper listing metal prices and a check from Paul Ehrlich for $576.07. There was no note. Julian Simon died in 1998, but Paul Ehrlich is still a professor at Stanford. He's 81 years old now. And we called him up to ask him how he feels today about that bet so long ago. And time, it has not softened his position. We were sorry that we lost because we knew uh, that the deniers, the people who think that everything's going to be great, that the that we can grow forever and so on, would make hay out of it. So obviously we were disappointed. Uh, political state mistake, maybe, but again, we did shut them up pretty much for 10 years. So it was not catastrophic. It's become what's technically known in science as a pain in the ass. Did you ever talk with Simon? Never, never talked to Simon. Never met him. Never wanted to. Do you think Julian Simon was entirely wrong? I, not only entirely wrong, colossally wrong. You, it's harder to be more wrong than to say that the only limit to uh, the copper human beings can have uh, is the weight of the universe, or to say that you can grow anything at any number anybody can think of. He knew absolutely nothing about anything important. What, what, what about sort of the more central idea of his, which is just that, you know, the economy— human, be, human beings are bright and we will adapt. And that the economy is not like a butterfly population. You know, that it doesn't crash. That is, things get expensive. People find alternatives. Uh, there's no question at all that people find alternatives when they get things get expensive and so on. There are limits— the adaptation, that's what he never, that's what many economists don't grasp. Did you learn something from the bet? Yeah, don't make bets. <laughs> that's, uh, we certainly made a mistake in making the bet because we lost it. You could argue that the world needs Ehrlich's and Simon's. Simon won that bet, but for what he was saying to work, for markets to be able to sort out something like pollution or climate change, you need the Ehrlich's of the world saying, hey, we got to do something about this. That's, after all, what a market is. A bunch of Ehrlichs and Simons fighting about what they think the future will be. We'll put a link to Paul Sabin's book, The Bet, on our website, npr.org money. You can send us email, planetmoney at npr.org. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. Fuck!